to show up and stay podcast. I'm your host, Deanne Knighton. Today, I have a very special guest. This was the person that I mentioned in one of my prior podcasts who has a very incredible set of skills, kind of like the guy in the movie Taken. This is my brother, Craig Knighton. Hello, Deanne. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. You kind of didn't have a choice. It's true. It's part of the job. A little bit part of the job, for sure. Okay. Well, so before we jump into what we wanted to talk about today, I I have a couple of things. I'm going to put Craig a little bit on the spot. First, I have to tell the audience a few things just about us. We were raised by the same two parents, but 14 years apart from each other. I don't know. We've talked about this before. Did we have different experiences, even though they were the same two people, but with 14 years in between? Oh, yes. But I would say, I think that there are some themes from our upbringing that both of us have carried into our adult lives. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think of of all of our siblings, you and I are probably more alike, even though we're 14 years apart. That's exactly right. That's what I was just Mm going to talk about. I definitely think it is fair to say that vulnerability and weakness are two sides of the same coin. And emotions are more for controlling and less for feeling would be two things that we probably both took away from our upbringing. No, I I would agree with them. Although I think maybe you figured some of these things out a lot earlier in life than I did. I think that you're part of the reason for that. You should not sell yourself short. Craig was in my life at home until I was four years old. And then he went to college and actually moved away to college. And then my family ended up moving across the country. So A lot of our interaction with each other outside of my very early years has been a few times a year in family get-togethers, but we've always maintained a relationship as well. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that you knew me just as a little baby. You were like a 14-year-old. You can't remember the day I was born, but I can remember the day you were. And I can also remember, speaking of emotions, there's only probably two or three times I can ever really remember my father showing emotion while I was a kid. And those are very memorable when they happen because it's such a rare event. And one of those was around your birth and around uh, the discovery that you were going to need to have surgery while you were a very, very young baby. That was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. Oh, wow. Yeah. How about that? (laughs) I don't know if I knew that. I've only heard retellings of it you know, every birthday since as long as I can remember. So maybe you need to tell the stories because I would be actually curious to hear it from you. I want to hear your reading of it. (laughs) All I know, I was born, had an issue. There was concern for my well-being enough that they just immediately took me to the big city. We were in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, northern Minnesota. We had a pretty easy childhood. It's very memorable. It's one of those things that Uh, stands out as a traumatic event. You're here. You survived the surgery. (laughs) It all worked out. I did. I survived the surgery. Yeah, to kind of transition a little bit into talking about what we're doing and, and why I got involved, I feel like one of the the most remarkable things was that You, my sister, who I knew so well for so many years, could go through something so traumatic in her life without me and the rest of my family really being all that aware. And I know that 
as I've started trying to figure out ways that I can give back at this point in my life, it has been remarkable to discover this challenge right here in my own backyard in so many different ways. Three people that are very important to me have all been affected by alcohol addiction in their lives. You, another uh, best friend for many years in high school. The same thing happened with my father-in-law as well. To see how many people are affected by the disease of addiction, it's a real issue for us. Yet somehow we're afraid to do the right things to try to address it. When I was looking at approaching the idea of putting myself in recovery, trying to identify resources that made sense to me, trying to know what the best path to go down was, I found it incredibly, incredibly daunting. I wasn't in a position to be able to have the right kind of discretion about what I should be doing for myself at that time. I just knew that I needed help. And being in that place and experiencing what was available was shocking to me. As I started getting healthier and evaluating the process that I went through, I saw so many ways and so many opportunities to be able to fill gaps. We have a great healthcare system, but there's so much we could do to make it better. That's a good place to start. And some of the challenges we face that are so poorly served relate to chronic conditions that we just haven't figured out how to manage or better yet, even prevent from developing in the first place. And in this weird sort of perverse way, we're so focused on figuring out how to spend money to fix things once they're broken that we don't spend much time or energy trying to prevent them from breaking in the first place. That's the kind of problem that's always fascinated me as an engineer. I've always wanted to understand why things break, you know, in thinking about this in terms of people and biology, why are some people more resilient than others. The training I've been getting over the last 10 years, especially as I focus more and more on healthcare and uh, learning more about biology and genetics, is it's, it's a really pretty complicated problem. And it's, it's so much more than just the, the clinical capabilities we have to be able to treat disease. That is a really relatively small component of health and whether or not we as a society are healthy that we spend more money than any other nation on healthcare per capita, yet there are far better results in other parts of the world. Uh, so I really feel like we have a lot to learn about that. And this is where my uh, experience as an engineer has come in, because now that we are understanding more and more about how genetics work, that problem is becoming more of a big data problem where if we want to understand why some people bend and other people break, we need to understand more about their genetics. And speaking even more specifically to addiction, there is, is clearly a genetic component to it. Um, some people are born with a genetic makeup that makes them more susceptible to addiction. It's just as simple as that. The other connection, I think, is just what you were referring to, which is that this isn't a moral failing, that there's something much bigger at work here. I, I wish I could say that I planned it this way, but one of the experiences I was fortunate enough to have in the last couple of years is to go to work with a new mental health provider and to learn a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy. I have to give that job a lot of credit for 
opening my eyes to this entire world. If you had asked me before I was 50 about feelings, I would have said, I'm an engineer. I don't have feelings. I, I have said that a thousand times in my life. Now that I'm wiser, I know that's not actually true. In fact, now that I've learned a lot more about mental health as well, I've realized that I have actually also lived a life that has often been plagued by anxiety. A lot of the choices I made were uh, in reaction to or as a coping mechanism for dealing with the anxiety that I felt. We look at each other, you know, and on the outside, we look fine. Um, and we might even ask each other if we're fine. Inside, we're often a hot mess. The exposure I got to cognitive behavioral therapy started opening my eyes to the power of just self-realization and, uh, and self-training, right? There's, there's so much that you can learn for yourself as long as your mind and heart are in the right place and are open to trying to figure out what's going on in your mind or in your body that's available, but um, often just too complex, too difficult to find. And sometimes it's just a matter of making it approachable, right? Bringing it to you where you are, which I, I have to all admit, right? We spend an awful lot of time with one of these mobile phones in our hands, solving problems, getting things done, entertaining ourselves, all of the above, right? It's also one of the best tools that exists to help people change behavior for the good or for the bad. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the inspiration of, of the app, if you will. And, um, you know, one of the tools that you and I are working on together right now, the, the craving tracker, right? Let's put information in the hands of people that are experiencing cravings so that when they're relevant, I'm having a craving right now, I, I can capture perhaps what was going on that seems to have related to triggering that craving and also capture how I feel uh, because the trigger creates emotions and the emotions cause behaviors and the behaviors, you know, feed the craving. Uh, and it, it's this vicious cycle that if you can get some help and a tool like this to help you through the, the minutes of stress that you're feeling while the, the craving is happening, uh, you can realize that it is in the end just a craving that you were able to distract and or master that craving and you can learn from it. So much about changing behavior is just realizing what it is that's happening uh, and naming and labeling and understanding the emotions that surround it. When people ask me about this project, there is this technical aspect to it, but obviously, you know, there is this connection to very real present things and and this idea and this beating heart behind it that wants whatever this tool to be to be something that is actually going to make a difference and that is based in things that have a proven level of efficacy in terms of long-term recovery. Right now in the recovery community in terms of long-term care, I know it has been shocking. You know, I, I just knew it from my own experience, but now as we have even been kind of opening up our eyes more on that, it's been fairly shocking to see what a lack of um, resources there are for people when they're starting to look ahead at, hey, what is it like to be a sober person? And honestly, I don't know that, that there are easy ways to connect people with that motivation right now. It can't possibly be a good idea to send people back into familiar circumstances that were not healthy for them before 
and expect a different outcome. That That is probably not going to work. If we can just make sure that when that is happening and they're making that transition from primary uh, treatment into aftercare, they are getting connected with a virtual community instead, right? And, and we'll at least know that they have access to information tools and a willing ear. But the, the power of building communities inside of an application like this is that you might be able to find and communicate with people who you feel immediately connected to because you can tell that they had the same experience or close enough that uh, you know they can relate to what you are feeling in the moment uh, and they can help you through it. That's the key. Some of the things that I want to see living and breathing within this only work though, because you also have that living and breathing in you, but then you have this ability to kind of trans help us translate it into something that it can actually reach a mass amount of people. That's the other thing about that kind of technology just in terms of our ability to get to as many people as possible. One of the areas of focus around that for us is making sure that this is accessible to as many people as possible. It, most important to me is making sure that we are creating something that is going to allow people to be able to see themselves in the recovery plan, that where they actually feel connected to what is presented, that they can see their identity represented in particular ways, that they can find resources that are specific to their own situation so that they can feel that they can build a community that is actually relatable to them. We're going to take a little pause. So Adam Grant, amazing social scientist, done a lot of behavioral work for workplace, but also has been kind of transitioning into other things as well. In 2016, he wrote a book called Originals. And he included information in that that he had done uh, pulled from a variety of studies around siblings and in particular, like sibling motivation and where people are from a birth order standpoint, how that leads them towards wanting to create or generate or whatever their life path looks like. So I'm just going to read this to you. Okay. So this is him on NPR talking about his book. He said, this subject is wildly controversial. I don't think I've ever seen another realm of social science with more competing results, but there are a series of studies suggesting that firstborns tend to be slightly more conventional achievers. Laterborns are inclined to challenge the status quo and do things that are a little bit more original. And get this. So if you look at over 300 pairs of brothers who played professional baseball, you see that younger brothers are more than 10 times likely to attempt to steal a base than their older sibling. Um, this is uh, Adam talking, of course. <laughs> he says, I think that one factor, the popular explanation from Frank Soloway, is that it's about niche picking, that you know it's hard to stand out being smarter or stronger than your older siblings. They have a clear advantage academically, maybe athletically, whatever that might look like. So what you do is you look for other ways to stand out. Mm -hmm. And one of those is to take risks or to be creative. I think it's pretty insightful. I have to say that you can't steal a base. It's stealing. Stealing's wrong, right? It's a rule-following kind of behavior that, that uh, I don't know, maybe it is uh, still acquired and has more to do with how parents raise children and, and the differences that occur as, frankly, they get a little wiser in understanding what matters as they're raising kids. Uh, they, they might instill a little bit too much rule-following in their firstborns. 
and a little too much achievement as a measure of value, kind of earning the praise that we all want to get from our parents. Either way, I can sure see the pattern. Uh, it makes sense. And, it, and I would relate to the idea that those who might follow in whatever footsteps are established there have little choice by being more experimental, by taking more chances, by not following the rules, challenging authority, all of those things that help them get the attention they're looking for. Yeah. And he says there's a lot of comedians. In yeah. That group yeah too, that makes because sense. that's another way of learning to get your older siblings to pay attention to you. To so I was thinking of you specifically in terms of what I feel like your example and, and the relationship with you has brought to my life. There's a lot of things besides my abandonment issues, of course. I think the first thing really is an achievement and success piece. I think an example in adapting to life and resilience I've seen in you over the years from whatever purview I was standing in, not always healthy ones, but still I was, you know, there seeing that and I know that it has had an impact. And I think also where you mentioned earlier, where there's something that kind of connects the two of us from a similarity standpoint, an example in evolution you know, and being willing to evolve or change or think about things differently or question something and being open to examining it. Even other things that I've seen you do and just in terms of championing people with talent in music and really trying to foster creativity in other people. I love you and appreciate you and, and you've had just such a tremendous impact. If I could find a way to describe my talent, it would be something like being able to recognize talent in other people. And some some people just are threatened by that, right? They're threatened by seeing what other people are able to do. I just love making it possible for people's talents to flourish. If I could be remembered for any achievement, that would be it. So maybe that's what has helped bond us over the years. I've always felt like you had amazing talent. You know, as an adult, I see it, that just getting expressed every single day. It's cool. Last topic that was on my mind was really kind of surrounding trauma. And unfortunately, as you age, it's more likely that you've been through traumatic events in your life. Each time those things happen, you're reminded that there are really common elements for recovering from any trauma. The time that it takes, the amount of work uh, and self-reflection you have to go through to metabolize the trauma and heal it, come healthier, both physically and mentally. Trauma is something that happens to you and it, it has an impact on you when it happens. There's a lot more to, to the human experience that is common about that recovery process than we maybe recognize. I feel like addiction as a, as a form of trauma and the stigma or shame that we maybe place on the, the victims of that trauma is just very wrong-minded and not helpful at all, right? If we can just get beyond that as a society and recognize people for the work they're doing to try to heal from the disease that has traumatized their lives, it could be so much better than it is. We could be so much more thoughtful and supportive. I think there's a real opportunity to not only help the people directed by it, but um, to have a real societal impact by helping recognize addiction as the disease that it is, rather than as something that anyone should be ashamed of. That would be the message I'd want you to hear. 
Was this your first time ever recording a podcast? Yes, and it was terrifying. Well, I think it worked out. And, you know, the thing that nobody knows on the other side is that there is this lovely edit button. Fair enough. Nor can anyone feel the anxiety that I've felt for the last so many minutes. Um, but now it's You've the relief that it's over, calm. I suppose. Well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I feel calm. It is my honor to be able to be working on this with you. And I love you. And thank you for being I my brother. I love you too. And I hope everyone can be well. Be well. <laughs>